Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Guess what? Oh, uh, it's spring? No, it's summer. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's cool. We could celebrate oh. that. But guess what else? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, you're five months to your next birthday? <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> How about? <laughs> I think it's four. Anyway. Okay. We have to play Scrabble. <laughs> Oh, go on. We have to play Scrabble. Like, I was was looking at where we're at on the Patreon, and we have hit the final level. Oh, my God. That we were never, we never thought we were going to to hit. And so we are required to play a game of Scrabble for the people. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I guess we'll figure out the details of that and make sure you all know when and where and... I mean, the why is perhaps something we could talk about here, but <laughs> we're going to have to ask. Uh, I'll flex my ears on Twitter, but um, <laughs> I guess that means we have some people to thank. Oh, my goodness. We so do. And every time I mean, like the support that, that people are giving us is just so wonderful. And it, it's meant that Sandy and I have got to pay ourselves for the first time in three years for the podcast. So that's been really, really great. But we are not spending it all. I mean, we have just hired someone to help clean up our transcripts. So that's going to hopefully happen because transcription's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big uh, expense, really. And, um, and so thank you so, so much for your support. Because now, I mean, before we were paying for it, and it was kind of like, oh my gosh, we have no more money left, but we, we can pay for transcripts. So we'll be doing that for the next couple of, of weeks. And then, you know, once our transcripts are hopefully cleaned up, well, we'll always be updating that. But we're also holding money back to you for the time that we, we finally can do live shows. I know that there's so many new listeners out there. Sandy, how much fun are live shows? Oh, my God. They are the most fun. It is so much more fun when, well, when I can see you. Yeah. And so we can, like, respond to our own ridiculousness. But when we can also see the audience and interact directly with the audience, it's just it just opens up another experience uh, for the podcast. And that's really great. So we really want to do that. Yes. And we will do that the second we can. Um, and of course, we're all in the same situation. So you know what our constraints are and, and and that kind of thing. But if you if you're new to the podcast, just just know that in normal times, we do live shows across Canada. And we will be doing that the second that we can. And so for everyone who has been supporting us um, in the last week, if you've changed your donation or if you're a new donor, I have got to say thanks to a lot of folks. Thanks so much to Stephen, Jennifer, Camille, Ali, Eleanor, Taha, Luke, Colin, Scott, Emma, Lauren, Jeremy, Michael, Katie, Connor, Martha, Dahlia, Christopher, Mel, Brenda, Laura, Nitya, Katie, Elizabeth, Sophie, Vicky, Jenny, Abrar, Sinead, Maris, David, Steph, Elizabeth, Basha, Maureen, Michelle, and Nick. So thank you all so, so, so much. Thank you. Oh, my God. It's been another wild week. Yes, it has been. How are we going to, what is there, what should we talk about now? You know, we're in a new season. I mean, like not season of the podcast, but like season, season wise. It's summer. Right. Right, right, right. A lot has happened uh, since January that I feel like, you know, we could talk about the impacts of all of it in this now moment. Uh, What do you think? How do we talk about this? 
It's so hard because, I mean, in the last 24 hours of us recording this, there were two more people killed by police forces. There was someone killed in Malton, Ontario, by Peel police, and there was someone killed by Montreal police in Montreal. Um, there's also been people who've died in remand uh, in the last week, um, and so in uh, police or, or prison custody. And, and those those deaths don't tend to get as much coverage um, because the, the communications is, is a lot more controlled around that. And so I feel like, you know, defund the police is still in our face and it's still really, really important. And and, and there's amazing uh, actions that have happened across Canada all week. My Twitter feed's been full of of pictures of rallies and of, of, of protests and painting the street. And I think that the real question that has to be posed that I think that we should try and, and wrestle with tonight today, if you're listening in the morning, this morning, if you're listening first thing in the morning, (laughs) is how do we move to action? How do we make sure that these calls to action, that this passion around changing things that seem impossible to change actually become possible and become real? And it's a big topic. Yeah. And I mean, even even as we're talking about, um, you know, defund the police and Black Lives Matter and uh, the conditions under which Indigenous people live, you know, you've been doing this this really important work on the way that COVID is uh, ex- uh, affecting people in long-term care facilities. And another uh, thing that hasn't been discussed a lot, but I know in my community is getting a lot of uh, people frustrated and thinking about how we should change things is the amount of people who are dying from COVID who are uh, temporary foreign workers also, um, who often are Black people who come from the Caribbean. So yeah, there's a lot that needs to shift. And uh, it is really important for us to figure out how we shift into action, because I think that coming out of this period of COVID, of the coronavirus, Oof, oof. If we learn anything from any time that there's been a crisis before, we're going to see a lot of politicians who say we don't have enough money to do anything. And as much as we're hurting now, there's going to be um, a push uh, to move to a lot of like austerity measures uh, as we as we continue through COVID and start to move out of it. Yeah, I I'm, I think that it hasn't broken into the mainstream media, this discussion about the racialized impact of of who COVID is killing at the level of, of healthcare workers or, or workers in general. And so you, mas- you mentioned temporary foreign workers. There are definitely uh, asylum seekers, temporary foreign workers who've been killed in the crisis. And of the 23 people who have died so far from COVID, Nine have been black. Now, the rest are also majority racialized. Uh, There's been three Filipino, Filipina workers who have died. There's been two Vietnamese workers who have died. Uh, We don't know uh, the identity of some that have died. Uh, Two have been white. And this week, La Presse uh, ran a a really sad story of the death of Desiree Buna Ivara, who it was uh, a, a father of five kids. A sixth child was on the way, and his wife was a was um, a préposé au bénéficiaire, an orderly. And so she got COVID. He caught it from her, and she, and he died. Oh my God! Um, and, and they are recently uh, from 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 Congo, and and so it's. It's the the dynamic that we're seeing uh, in the 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 Black Lives Matter movement in the movement to defund the police has a direct tie-in as well to public health 
and uh, and in the in the COVID crisis, and we are already hearing politicians start to talk about ways to avoid responsibility for what happened. You know, the the this racial dynamic is basically erased. You know, there has been some reporting of focusing on 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 the death of a person here and a death of a person there, but there's been nothing that's been more uniform in saying, look, there's this 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 movement for Black Lives in Canada at the exact same time where Black workers have been way, way disproportionately killed by this. I mean, nine of 23, and it's not nine of 23, it's more like nine of 19, because we we don't know the the information of of at least three people on this list. Mm -hmm. It's really shocking. It's really shocking. And the fact that our politicians haven't said anything about this and that media hasn't made this into an issue is is quite, uh, frankly, it's pathetic. Well, and then also we have the issue of politicians being weirdly quiet on this like social movement that might be the biggest social movement that we've seen certainly in a really long time, decades, uh, happening across the world, people taking to the streets, uh, demanding defunding the police everywhere from fucking Finland to the UK uh, to Brazil to Canada. And uh, we have not heard like peep from any provincial politicians, really, um, where a lot of the responsibility around this stuff lies. Uh, and what we have been hearing on a federal and um, city level, depending on what city you're in, some are better than others, is like leaves a lot to be desired. And it's like, gosh, how can it be that so many people take to the streets in a way that we have not seen before in this country? Uh, and politicians have literally nothing to say. Like, what is the state of our democracy then? And then how do we indeed have an impact on ensuring that uh, the people who have the power, uh, their hands are forced and the conditions under which we're forced to live change? If we can't do that at this moment when there's there's so much energy and fervor around forcing some sort of change, then what's it going to look like as we are moving out of COVID and politicians move to what they always move to, austerity measures? It it feels like there's like a a brick wall between the social movement organizing that's going on right now and politicians, eh? Well, yeah. And uh, it also, it really puts into stark perspective, like the state of our democracy, right? That so many people can, can, can you know take to take to the streets on an issue or be so frustrated about an issue and you know you see a, an an MP like Carolyn Bennett be like oh god this is so terrible what can we do uh tweet about it like that um or Justin Trudeau just go and uh you know take a knee at a protest um and you know like these types of weird platitudes where the where politicians know that they have to show the audience, the show, the people who are um, expressing their frustration at an issue that they've they've heard it in some way, but aren't actually taking steps to uh, respond to what people are asking for. Yeah, yeah. So let's start maybe by by mentioning some of the signals that we're getting from politicians that show that they are not at all taking this seriously. We know that already there's a lot of pressure for public accounting on what the costs of the pandemic are are or have been or what they're projected to be. So Quebec just posted a $15 billion deficit, and that 
is going to be a useful tool for Quebec to be able to say, oh, my goodness, the cupboards are bare. We must have to we have to tighten our belts. We have to impose this this new regime of austerity, even though the, the last two regimes of austerity are what literally have caused the uh, the current conditions within long term care in Quebec uh, to be so deadly. We have Rob Ford who uh, has been saying that he's going to be trying to get rid of some stat holidays for fr- frontline workers, uh, which is a, a, a confounding uh, kind of decision uh, that, that has been floated. I'd be surprised if it goes anywhere, but it is interesting to hear that they're just floating these ideas. And he's also been floating the idea that anyone who worked or can demonstrate that they worked in good faith within long-term care will be shielded from any litigation that might come forward from families uh, who are suing for some semblance of justice and the lives taken from uh, from their loved ones. Um, at the same time, there's also Jason Kenney, who's like trying to make it illegal to protest. <laughs> I'm not sure if our listeners are aware of that, um, but he he's put forward a piece of legislation that will uh, make it that will criminalize civil disobedience in a way that is extremely problematic. Oh and I would say, uh, oh, I don't know, anti-democratic, bordering on totalitarianism, a fascist wet dream, probably. I mean, that guy, obviously, that's his that's his jam is dreaming about fascism and and having a wet dream. But anyway, um, the... <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to finish that sentence. <laughs> just a second. I just have to throw bleach all over my entire body. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it really does seem that, the, that the, the signals that those politicians are putting out is that that these protests, that these popular uprisings, these these movements are not reaching them. How how then do we reach them? What is it going to take for movements in the street to scare politicians and to force politicians into action? Yeah. And I mean, on the police issue, I, you know, I don't know across Canada exactly what's happening, but I can say that in Toronto, the the mayor and the police uh, were scheduled to have press conferences on Friday. Uh, they canceled them. There was a bunch of actions happening on Friday. It's, it was Juneteenth, which is uh, a, a day celebrating the ab- abolition of enslavement in the United States. Um, our day, in case you're wondering, the Emancipation Day in Canada and uh, across the Commonwealth is August 1st, which I bet most people didn't know, but there it is. Um, that's why Caravana is usually on that weekend, the Caribbean festival that happens in Toronto. Uh, Toronto and a lot of uh, 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 carnivals that happen in the in the Caribbean are also on this day for on August first for that reason. Uh, a little bit of history there for you, um, but anyway, they canceled uh, their event because they probably were like, "Oh fuck, this doesn't seem good." <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of protests happening today and uh, it might be uh, disrespectful. Um, but in any case, what they were going to announce uh, was uh, hilariously nothing um, like, like what people are asking for. They wanted to put a bunch of money into their own mental health unit that they have. They have like a mobile mental health unit uh, that's run by the police. They wanted to put more money into that, more money into body cameras. 
Um, they wanted to throw a bone, I suppose, by saying that they were going to uh, release the entire police budget line by line, which is like fucking ridiculous that that's not already a thing. So thanks for nothing. Um, and uh, to, you know, like look into what else can be done, blah, 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 which is like research. So more of the same. And John Tory was going to have another press conference um, supporting um, that move. And of course, city councilors uh, in Toronto have submitted a motion to defund the police by a measly 10%, which is like literally fucking nothing, doesn't do anything. Um, and we need so much more than that. Um, so, you know, like I imagine that that is, uh, we're going to see some of the same uh, across uh, Canada. Um, and so it's like, again, you know, politicians and the people who make decisions uh, based on apparently what we want <laughs> are not doing that. So they're doing they're doing uh, stuff based on what somebody else wants. Um, I imagine in the case of policing, it's like police unions uh, and so on. People who have like a, a lot of money to power in our society. With respect to COVID, um, you know, we're talking about banks and big business who are going to get to determine where the bulk of the money goes that is uh, going to be spent trying to re-stimulate the economy. Uh, and that leaves uh, the people who have been devastated, uh, the racialized folks and black people who have been devastated by COVID, those workers who have been devastated by COVID, um, the the people who have been killed uh, by police what, again, continue to be devalued uh, in our system. And so, you know, what Nora and I were talking about just before the show, when we were trying to consider uh, what it is that we would talk about today, it's like, we, we can't, we can't let that happen. You know, right now, as we kind of talked about a little bit last week, as a society, we have a little bit more time to engage in, uh, in, in, in civic engagement. Um, to be active in how we shape our world. So it's like, what exactly do we need to do differently this time? And how do we need to approach it to make it impossible for those in power to deny what the people in like as powerful as we are united together on the ground uh, demand? What's it look like? What's it going to take? Yeah. Well, I also just wanted to to say, too, that it's, you know, it's also indigenous communities that have been really, really hurt by COVID. And that that's also not on the radar at all. Uh, Northern Saskatchewan uh, indigenous communities have been really, really affected by this uh, by this illness. And um, and so that's important to mention as well. The really fun thing about this moment is that we know that it's historic and we know that the course of history is going to change. That's obvious, that there's such a break within the status quo that it will not be possible to, to patch together the, the, the world to become another, the status quo as we knew it. There, there will be things that are gone forever. There will be things that are here that will be here forever. And what we are engaged in right now, although you might not see it, is this incredible battle over who controls the future of our society and our, and our economy. And politicians know very well, I mean, I'm sure we've mentioned this on the show before, politicians know very well that the window to, 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 to 
control the narrative, to control what's going to happen next, is very small. And they have uh, politicians, they have uh, bankers in their ears, they have business people in their ears, they've got lobby groups and, and lawyers and, and, and cops and stuff in their ears saying, now is the time to do X, Y, and Z, these things that were never possible before. In the same way that the left is thinking of now is the time to do things that were never possible before. They're saying from a right-wing perspective, do these things now. Our window is the same window to try and get uh, to try and influence what's going on. And the problem with the way that movements have formed in the last couple of months is that they have formed out of a world where a lot of people have had no interaction at all with with creating social change. And so what I mean by that is there's a lot of uh, young activists who may have held political beliefs that have been progressive or left wing, but have never really taken action to be able to say that they want to see these policies or or whatever implemented within their local government or their provincial or their federal government. Uh, We're seeing um, a generation or or two generations, really, of of young people, uh, Gen Z and millennials, who have never known anything but austerity, politicians lying to them, uh, uh, public services being cut and cut and cut, uh, taxes continuously being cut for businesses while their, uh, their personal finances continue to get worse, right? Higher tuition fees, higher personal debt, and all this kind of thing. And... The the idea then that that we actually can create enough of a of a pressure from 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 society from the grassroots to change the course of our own history is really academic. It's really theoretical. I mean, you can look at examples of it from history, but then you're just reading about them in books. And so it's incredible to actually live through a moment where where now actually is that time that we can make these changes. And so navigating a world that we don't know what it's going to look like in three months. We don't know what it's going to look like in six months. We really have no idea what a year from now is going to look like. We can only imagine or we can just assume it might look like what last year looked like and we're just all going to go back to normal. Or we can forget all of that. And in the small amounts of extra time that we have, we can start thinking about ways to disrupt, dismantle, influence the decisions of politicians. Because one of the things that I, f- I think is the funnest part about this moment, and, and Sandy, I know that you have direct experience with this, is that you can actually see in real time the intellectual thinness of our politicians exposed. Like these are not deep thinking people. These are arrogant people. These are narcissistic people. They are people who don't actually necessarily have an opinion about what's going on, even though they are in politics or or they're right wing shitheads and they're actually in politics to cause harm. And that should give people a lot of confidence to be able to actually stand up and say the emperor, he's naked, everybody. The guy is fucking naked. I mean, there's a reason why that story exists because that's the kind of moment that we're in right now. And I think that that's where we need to be drawing a lot of our inspiration uh, and ideas for what does come next and, and how we can create those kinds of structures or the kinds of demands that really cannot be ignored. Yeah, I think that um, uh, one thing that's like really important from those of us on the ground who want to shift things is mindset. And mindset number one that you just referenced that we need to know is that, you know, there is like, there's no aptitude test for being a politician or policymaker. Okay, literally, 
everyone who is listening right now, you are probably just as smart as most of the politicians who are currently running our country. And not just uh, someone like Oosterhof, who's like really young and obviously doesn't have a lot of experience about anything in the world and so has really ridiculous opinions on shit. And is also just an asshole. Um, but like, like, broadly speaking, uh, politicians. And, you know, Nora and I have talked about this on the show before. I know we have a lot more new listeners this week. So I'll just say it again, um, that, we, you know, we used to be involved in an organization which would see us uh, meeting with politicians regularly. And when I tell you that uh, there is nothing <laughs> that felt more empowering than, you know, being like 21 or 22 and meeting with uh, politicians who really didn't know like simple facts about the way that our democracy runs <laughs> or about how how people um, uh, generally are, <laughs> just mm. like how people live. Um, it was like, oh, my God, for me, it was really like a per curtain pulling moment where I was like, man, I am smarter than most of the people in these rooms. And they're given all of this power. It it can't be that difficult to move people from place to place um, if we need to, because uh, all, all that this country really runs on is a whole lot of arrogance, okay? A whole lot of arrogance. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of ignorance in there, too. And so, you know, um, I don't know if I should tell like a particular story, like I'll, I'll think about uh, whether or not I want to do that as this <laughs> as we continue to record. But just trust me on this, okay? Meeting specifically with people like, including someone like Ma Michael Ignatieff, right? Were you in that meeting, Nora? I can't remember, but there, there no, was a meeting- I was not. <laughs> with Michael Ignatieff where, you know, I'm sitting there in front of this man who's like this professor and learning, oh my God, you're a giant fool when it comes to this issue that you should know about. Um, and you don't know anything about. So that's one. Two on mindset is like, you really need to not believe everything that you hear. I mean, I think we've been pretty clear over the last few weeks, actually over the lifetime of this podcast, about the fact <laughs> that, you know, you really have to be critical about what you hear on the news, right? Like you just, you just need to take it with a grain of salt um, or, I don't know, a pound. But like, <laughs> the the if you if you take a look at the press releases that government will put out on a particular issue you will often notice um that the the news will report uh what the government says verbatim without doing any sort of like critical analysis which is kind of like being like a, the communications wing of the government but it is you know it's wrong you know the the news should be telling us what's real and so you have to kind of orient yourself to what's real and so i imagine one of the things that we'll be hearing out of this moment is there is no money to spend to make the changes that we really want to make. The government will say that and the news will report it uncritically. But I think we need to be super critical about that line of reasoning, especially given that, you know, uh, during COVID, there was also no money. <laughs> there was no money to make any changes and to, to solve any problems. However, um, the, the money was found uh, to create over three dozen new programs 
uh, in our society. And you might be saying, okay, well, you know, like, uh, sure, the money was found now, now, but then they have to make up for it. I mean, maybe. But here's the thing. Something, and this brings me to number three on mindset. Something that has always frustrated me is the way that, um, uh, you know, popular media will discuss deficits and debt as though they're the same thing. They're not the same thing, okay? And I think we have to start talking about how um, now is an important time to run a deficit. It is. It just fucking makes sense that you would run a deficit uh, at a time when people are really struggling and need a lot of investments in things, in services that will keep them alive. I mean, that might be something that we do in our own budgets as humans. You know, like you make a certain amount a year uh, and maybe you have some saved over from the last year or the year before. And so maybe you spend more in a year than you've made because you need to invest in something or you, you, you know, money was tight on a, a few things or you had some things uh, come up in your life that were unexpected. And so you spend from that fund that you saved from the year before or the year before that, like that's a deficit. That's how deficits work. And it makes sense for us to run deficits sometimes. They're not the exact same thing as debt, uh, even though we talk about them like they are. And like, I don't know when is a better time to run a deficit than like when there was a fucking global crisis where you had to shut down the entire economy. Anyway, those are three mindsets that I think we need to put ourselves in uh, as we come out of um, this like unprecedented global moment. There's also a lot of power that people have because our politicians are so unimpressive individuals, I think that average people don't realize that they do actually scare the hell out of them when they start to put direct pressure on them. And so, you know, people start showing up to town council out of nowhere. Politicians get nervous. Uh, people uh, do some sort of action like throwing paint on uh, a local statue of a racist. People start to get really panicky or the, or the, the politicians start to get really panicky. And we, we're, we've got two issues in front of us. I mean, there's so many other issues that we also can talk about. Uh, migrant worker rights, I think, is another issue that people need to have front and center in their minds. Um, but if we think of defunding the police, we think about changing the system in long term care. What is going for us in both situations is that the facts are undeniable. The f like they're just so clear, right? Police budgets have gone up astronomically. Violent crime has been on a, on a long downward slide for 50 years for a whole bunch of social factors that have nothing to do with how much money the police are given and the police are killing people, right? Okay. Airtight arguments that, that literally any any average person is swayed by. So it's like, okay, so there's actually support for these issues. That's that's actually really important. So, you know, we're not starting from the ground. We're starting from maybe, you know, three feet above the ground. Long-term care is the same thing. There's not a single person in the world that would say the long-term care system that we have is a good system. Uh, the, the, we, we need to get private uh, for-profit long-term care out of our system. The evidence is growing and, and overwhelming that that's driving a lot of the, the horrible conditions within long-term care. Okay, so again, we've got public support for these things. If you're in a small town, you have a lot of ability to, to, to actually confront the, the mini politicians, the mini dictators of your, of your local community to start scaring them into thinking about some of these ideas. And, you know, it's one thing to, to see protest as the end of your action. 
And I think a lot of people do think of protests like that. We have the protest and now our action is finished. But protest is not is not the end. Protest is like one of a hundred steps that come from nothing to a victory. And the, the protest can be used for a whole bunch of reasons, like meeting new people, bringing people together, showing strength in numbers, scaring politicians, making demands, getting media attention. Those are all things that happen out of a protest. But what doesn't happen out of a protest is the, the activist work that then comes with, you know, talking to politicians, uh, putting yourself into meetings and, and disrupting those meetings and making sure that business as usual cannot happen until politicians take uh, the demand that that we have seriously. And so there's a lot that you can do and that people can be thinking about these things. Um, But it is really important to know that like at the core, this is a system that has been created to operate like this. And so we're not looking to fix anything. Right. We're not looking to fix these little bugs. I mean, Sandy, you were talking about the some of the stories that you, that you have from from meeting with politicians. One of the things that struck me every every year that we did these meetings was how every single student who was in a meeting with a politician who was not white had an overt act of racism committed against them. Oh, yeah. I and so let me just fucking tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> one of these stories, I suppose, just so that people have uh, an idea of like what I'm talking about. So I'll tell two, actually. Oh, one was uh, a meeting with a I think it was a provincial meeting. I can't remember what year it was. But, you know, one of these days, I'll I'll go back and find out exactly which politician it was. Uh, someone from. Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I'm going to figure it out and I will um, tell you folks next week or at some point um, on the podcast for sure. But we're meeting uh, with politicians and discussing a program called the Post-Secondary Student Support Program, which is an envelope of funding that uh, that funds uh, Indigenous uh, access to post-secondary education. It's been frozen since the 90s. Uh, and so uh, because it's been frozen for such a long time and tuition fees have continued to go up, it's become an inadequate way of funding post-secondary education for Indigenous people. And, you know, people in, in Canada are often told the lie that Indigenous people get uh, to go to post-secondary education for free. And it is not true. It is funded through this, this inadequate uh, pocket of funding. Okay. So, We go into a meeting, we're talking about, like, look, this pocket of funding, it's, uh, it's been frozen for so long, we need to shift this. And the politician turns to us, and it's me, there's an indigenous person with me and somebody else. uh, And he says, you know that they learn differently than we do, right? (laughs) And I, me, being black and never having been on this side of this kind of conversation before I was like, excuse me. And he was like, do you, do you really want us to waste this money on these people when, you know, they don't, they don't learn the same as we do. I'm like, this is a fucking member of parliament who I am meeting with in the house of commons who is saying this to me and two other students who are, we're just shocked, disgusted, offended. And, you know, he's moving on, like he's continuing conversation as though he didn't say anything weird. Uh, The meeting that we had with Michael Ignatieff was uh, similarly, we were talking about this issue. And he says to us, Michael Ignatieff says to me and a bunch of other students, some, uh, some who, some of whom may be listening to this podcast, (laughs) uh, says to us, 
oh, well, you, you want, and th- again, this is on the issue of the PSSSP, the, tr- the post-secondary student support program. You want us to put money into this program? Let me tell you what happens when we put money into programs like these. You know, the indigenous people, they just use it on, on other things. Like, you know, we try to t- tell them, you know, put it in education and they just use it for other things uh, that we're not uh, funding. And so it's like used irresponsibly, like, you know. Some communities will use this kind of funding on, like, you know, cleaning water or, or something. And we're we're all sitting in this meeting, like, what the fuck? And uh, I think there was a there was a student. I think it was, uh, oh, it was definitely someone from BC. I'm pretty sure who says, uh, you know. Um, Mr. Ignatieff, I am okay if uh, if uh, the pocket of funding that is allocated to education gets spent on potable water, because I think that potable water might be necessary to getting an education as well. Like, I, I see no problem with that. Perhaps you guys should also consider funding... Um, potable water <laughs> like it just but this is this is the like the level of ridiculousness that exists in our government in the people who are making the decisions um uh of, of how our our world is run and like you know as uh I, I don't think he'll mind if I say who it is if as you know Michael Olson uh is the person who who made that comment to um uh, Michael Ignatieff and I, you know, I remember um, Michael Ignatieff being like, "Huh, hmm, okay," had nothing to really say, like, no, no, you like this is not right. He was just like, "Oh," as though he literally had never thought about it that way, right? Uh, and that, you know, like he supposed he was supposed to be a star of the Liberal Party. He was the leader at the time of the Liberal Party. So it's it's just like that is the level of um, discourse for some of the people who are running this country. So if you ever think, you know, that you don't know, like that when you're saying something, you just don't know enough about a topic. Let me tell you how you probably know a lot more than the people who are making decisions about that topic. And furthermore, you don't necessarily have to know all of the answers when you're demanding change. You know, one of the the things that um, power will come back to us with when we're demanding change as a way to stunt the conversation is Nora will say something like, man, these long term care homes, they've got to change. And then I, asshole politician, will say, Nora, how? How do you want to change it? And then Nora will say, well, I think for starters, we shouldn't have private companies coming in to run this on a profit model. And then I, asshole politician, or maybe even asshole media personality, will say, well, Nora, I suppose that means you want this to come from the public purse. How much will that cost? <laughs> and Nora will say, uh, I'm Maybe Nora doesn't know. Nora doesn't fucking know. Okay. She's just been tracing this shit. Okay. She doesn't know. She just knows that something's bad and she wants it to change. And they say, well, Nora, if you haven't done your fucking homework, how do you expect us to make any changes? Go back, do some fucking homework. And this conversation is over until such time that you actually do what you need to do for us to be able to respond to you. (laughs) And what would you say to such asshole, Nora? I've, I've been in that conversation probably 20 times. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like I'm just like such an expert on that conversation now. Can't get me with that. Oh yeah. But how do we respond to something like that? Because I think it does, you know, especially for someone who's a new activist or someone who's just started thinking about an issue and maybe has called their politician, maybe it's something local and they they actually get to speak directly to a politician who literally says to them, "God, well how much is that going to cost? Like have you have you run the numbers?" Uh, there's two ways that you can answer that, right? That you can answer that like in that classic wrestling uh, response, which I only know for having been in high school once, where it's like, how much is that? It doesn't matter what it's going to cost. Just change it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a Too many people are dying. Fuck you. Like, figure it out. (laughs) Figure it out. Yeah. It's like you've got a whole ministry of people to fucking give the figures. You, You figure it out. The second way to answer it is to find out. And um, there are a lot of people who are doing this kind of work. And and this is where the defund the police campaign is so exciting <laughs> because it's costing less, right? It flips on its head the, the discussion that there's no money for social change. It's like, well, actually, in this situation, social change will cost you less. Um, and it won't just cost less, but it'll also cost fewer lives and cost uh, less uh, anxiety and harassment of people in uh, on uh, you know living in in, in certain communities. Um, but we we have to flip that logic on its head because even with long term care, oh, how much is it going to cost? Yeah, it's going to cost a fucking lot. And I certainly know that the banks have had year over year over year of record profits in the last five years, six years, uh, to the point where um, they're they're sitting the five major banks in Canada are sitting at thirty eight billion dollars of net profit. Okay, that's like thirty eight billion billion motherfucking billion. That's a lot of money. Um, and there's money that's being spent all the time. I mean, a billion dollars was wasted on the G20 in, in 2010. Almost the same amount was spent on the G20, uh, sorry, G7 in Quebec City two or three years ago where literally nothing happened. No one protested in numbers larger than 500 and they still spent this kind of massive amounts of money. We also know income inequality is a huge problem in this this country and the the richest 1% own a quarter of the fucking economy. It's like, oh, here's an idea. Fuck all of that. Like, the money is there. And the question is, do we give more profit to Galen Weston, who owns Loblaw, or do we take profit from these from these fucking exceedingly mind-blowingly rich pieces of fucking shit and start reinvesting it into public services? Because the models exist. You can do comparative public analyses to different countries around the world. You can look at why Australia's death rate in long-term care hasn't been as high as Canada's or why Taiwan has done such a better job than Canada has done in, in, in its uh, abatement of covid Or you can just say to the politician, I know you're fucking not the sharpest tool in the toolbox, but my guy, you're in a toolbox. You can talk to other tools and maybe they can help you out with this stuff and understand it. My job is to make sure that you feel like there's a fire under your ass and you can't sit in your chair. God, that was an excellent way to phrase it. If you do end up saying that toolbox thing, say it exactly like that, that you have other tools. (laughs) Please. (laughs) To rely on. That is excellent. And you know what? I I just want to focus on that um, way of answering the argument uh, or answering that question just for a couple seconds more, because I do think it's really important to ask you, random citizen, to know everything there is to know about an issue when they have an entire staff of people who are actually supposed to know everything there is to know about a particular issue is just so unfair. You don't have to know exactly how to deal with a particular problem in order uh, for you to be able to say, like, look, this is wrong and you have to deal with it. As my representative, I want you to, be, to, to deal with it. 
And in fact, I guarantee you that right now, uh, in absence of anybody saying to them, this is how we should come out of COVID, make sure you think about these things, that none of these fucking politicians know exactly how to get out of COVID right now with the with the direction that they want to take. And, and that's true for any period of time on any issue, because any policy is always living. Any policy changes as the times change, as our populations change. It, it responds to what's happening on the ground. There is no master plan where any single person knows exactly how education is going to look in the next two years. They might have some sort of plan, but nobody knows exactly what it what it's going to look like. And nothing, uh, you know, proves that more than COVID happening at all. And so the idea that you need to know everything about a particular issue when they don't know anything about most issues... <laughs> is ludicrous. <laughs> and you should be confident in spelling that out. Like, God, like, what kind of arrogance and ignorance does it take for somebody to say to you? Oh, you want the police to be defunded. Um, you don't want uh, indigenous and black people to die, but you haven't figured it out. Well, <laughs> I, then I won't figure it out. Like, what kind of fucking asshole are you? Like, that's actually like literally your job. That is why you're elected. So that people like you and the staff that we provide um, through our um, tax dollars will figure it the fuck out. So either hire me or figure it the fuck out. <laughs> I want to spend maybe the last 30 seconds or the last two minutes of the podcast just, just identifying beware of half measures and beware of co-opted demands. Because that is the way that the liberals or liberal politicians, whether it's the federal liberals or whether you're in a province with liberally politicians, I mean, Doug, I'm going to include Doug Ford and Francois Legault in this as well. They are going to put forward things that sound like they are working or they sound like they are listening to people, right? Francois Legault just announced a systemic racism task force. No, not systemic. A racism task force. What the fuck is that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> For oh a guy God. who's like, this is there's no systemic racism, to choose people from all these different ministries suggests that he fucking knows there's systemic racism because you cannot have a systemic response to racism without there being systemic racism mm. but anyway maybe for a different episode and so and so and so sandy i'm sure you have some I, like things you're watching and that you're kind of worried about in terms of where politician promises might be going but in terms of long-term care we have to be asking for the maximum program literally no for-profit private homes better funding, more hours of care, better wages for all of personal care workers. And we will see improvements to the, to the system. There's no question about that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that the, the types of things that we're going to see coming out of um, uh, the, the struggle for defunding police is studies. We need studies. We need to look at this. Um, we can't do an emergency task force without a study. We can't do uh, a reduction of uh, or disarming frontline police officers without a study to know how that's going to impact us. It's like, you guys, I can tell you how it's going to impact us. Less people are going to fucking die. Can we just do it already? Like there are models that already exist and studies that have already been done, we don't need to, to uh, reinvent the wheel. So we cannot be placated with the bare minimum. We have to push for the maximum program. Like that is the, the period of time that we are living in right now. And similarly with COVID, I, you know, I'm sure uh, we're going to hear a lot of, you know, uh, maybe some tax credits or something like that, something that does the very 
bare minimum to provide some sort of relief to mm, exactly the tax bracket that tends to vote for the liberals, probably, and <laughs> nobody else, <laughs> um, and maybe some big banks. And again, we have to not be uh, satisfied by that. In the same way that Nora and I like uh, critiqued the the um, CERB, uh, which, you know, at, at first people seem to be pretty happy about, but now people are or, are more seeing the the problems with the half measure that the CERB really was. Like, I think it's going to be a similar thing. You know, people will, will see these like tax breaks or like this tiny measure that comes to placate you just before the austerity really gets ramped up. And we cannot be convinced by those small half measures. That is not the moment we're in. It is time for us to push for whatever maximum program there is. 